So just some things real quick that we're looking at. There's a basic structure of the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah, there's a chair down there. There's one right here. No, there isn't. You good? You got it? Okay. Yeah, there's one here next to Carol. So there's um, a basic structure of Deuteronomy. If you remember the beginning, uh, we had a, a, an introduction section for the first four verses. And then what began to happen was is that Moses set off in what's known as the historical prologue. The historical prologue uh, is a means of him recounting their most recent uh, let's call it adventures, I guess, uh, of what they've dealt with in... Um, sorry, take, everybody got one of these? You got one of these? Okay, there we go. Take one, pass it. The recent adventures while coming into the land. If you remember, it detailed the ideas of them overcoming Og, the king of Bashan, and, I saw, and also a guy named Sihon. Uh, however, they spared Edom, Moab, and those types of things. Um, Anyway, in doing that, God is proving his faithfulness and wanting to take care of his children the entire time, and he is leading them to a point of crossing over. If you remember, Moses disqualified himself from crossing over into the land and leading the people into those uh, the, the situation of actually conquering the land and setting up shop because he had struck the rock whenever God had told him uh, excuse me, to speak to the rock the second time. That's important to remember that faithfulness can disqualify you from some privileges that God wants to give you. So, we then moved into a situation starting in chapter 5 where we dealt with the idea of the law of God and what is known as general stipulations, and that stretched all the way up until the end of chapter 11. Starting in chapter 12, you begin with specifications to those stipulations, and so now we're going to get more detailed. And this is something I wrote down, uh, if it helps you, that's great. Um, can I even read it? Uh, let's see here. Since chapter 12, the main point has been Yahweh's separation of Israel and their distinguishment among the nations. That's the whole idea. The Jewish people were always from the beginning because they were specially called by God to live different lives. Now, the reason why we're going to see the things that we're going to see is because God is positioning their new attitudes, actions, convictions, morals, standards of living, and everything against what the common pagan, demonically influenced, and saturated worldly society is deeming as valuable. He is removing them from that situation. Now, can anybody give me, this is a real easy question, I promise you, it's not like these Jeopardy questions we've been seeing lately. Can anybody give me the word? that deals with the idea of God taking a person and removing them from a situation because he's going to do something different with them. Sanctifying. It's sanctifying. The word actually comes from that idea. Yes, it's the same concept. You guys are going to be like, oh, holy. Holy is the idea. Yeah, see? Oh, that's the idea. Holy. Remember, what holy means is holy means set apart from all else. Or set apart from the common. Or set aside for specific use. Now, <clears throat> I'll say this. I know there's been some debate back and forth uh, about this in theological circles. And we can talk a little bit about it if you want to. But I don't want to get hung up on it. The whole idea of election in the Bible is never, not one time in Old or New Testament ever, 
an election for some people to go to heaven and everybody else who wasn't elected to go to hell. The Bible never teaches that concept. However, the Bible does teach that certain people have been chosen or elected or set aside, set apart for a particular task, ministry, mission to fulfill that God has placed them on. And it's important that we see that God's electing work, when we talk about that the Jews are the elect nation of Yahweh, what we're talking about is he pulled them out of the rest of the nations and he gave them a specific ministry that was to be demonstrated. And this is why we see their ministry is, this is why we see the constant rehashing of you will be quick or you will be careful to do his laws and keep his commandments, right? We see that. And after I mean, we're only 14 chapters into Deuteronomy. We're like, good grief. Can these people not get this yet? I get this by now. Good grief. And the answer is no. They didn't get it. They still didn't get it. Once they got in the land, they didn't get it. They failed and messed up and goofed everything up all over the place. Yet in Deuteronomy 4, we're told, why is it that they were to live in such a way? Because it set them apart from the rest of the nations, and it was a moral high ground that served as a beacon to the nations. And this goes all the way up into what we just saw in chapter 13. If you remember, there were three different situations about what to do with someone who tries to lead you away from the words of the almighty creator God, Yahweh himself. They may do all kinds of miracles. They may be very close to you, what have you. But the fact is, if they try to lead you astray to worship other gods besides the one true God, you are to deal with them severely. And that includes death. So is there anything to say about all that before we move forward and we step into 14.1? How do you define death? I define death as separation. Yeah, and I would say that as far as physical death is concerned, uh, physical death is the separating of the spirit from the body. So yeah, absolutely, I would say that. And that's what that's why we see such things as when Paul says, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, because we're present in spirit. And this is also what foreshadows the idea with Jesus being the first fruits of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a bodily resurrection. Well, that's also uh, depicting the fact of a future coming of our bodily resurrection. There could be the temptation to say, well, if you die and there's a future resurrection we're waiting for, then you're just kind of there in a holding place or you're not conscious or whatever they want to say. You're spiritually void until that calling moment when you're called up to meet him in the air. Uh, I don't think that's the case at all. When, when we purgatory. die, uh, you know what? A lot of people can use it to justify purgatory. Exactly. Exactly. They could. Exactly. They could. But even the con- and one thing that one thing is the greatest flaw and this is why Catholicism needs to have all that other stuff around it. One of the greatest flaws for the argument of purgatory is the fact that you have to pay to make an advancement. Notice it's still about what you do in order for God to accept you. And, and, and that's that's what the whole religion's based on. What's your performance like? How are you doing? How are you living? You know, that kind of thing. If, if we're not operating out of our already acceptance because of Christ then we're just trying to earn it with God all the time. Because there's no assurance any other way. Either Jesus did it all, or he didn't do it, and I need to do it because I'm not sure he did it. So that's, yeah, that's that's a lot of that. Can, mess. I, tell you, can I tell you a little story on that? Sure. Some of the, the old Catholics up around uh, Reedsburg, the father had died, and they were paying to get him out of purgatory, and they, and they kept paying and kept paying, and 
Finally, the guy said well, to the priest, ah, how much farther? Well, he said, just a little bit. He said, well, if I know the old man, he'll jump the rest of the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a true story. That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. After a while, that stuff gets ridiculous, man. It really does. So, Any other questions before we jump into 14.1? And again, for those of you that were here last week, I apologize to rehash this, but with it not recording and all that... It, lends itself to be necessary so all right so notice what it says here chapter 14 verse 1 you are the sons of yahweh your elohim you shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead for you are a holy people to yahweh your elohim and yahweh has chosen there is the word has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of the people's who are on the face of the earth. Now let's pause there. Uh, one important thing that I forgot to bring up last week that, that I can't believe I glossed over it, was if you actually look at the literal construction of the, these Hebrew sentences, starting in both verse 1 and verse 2, anytime that a sentence is written in the Hebrew language that wants to draw a particular emphasis, the thing that is emphasized is mentioned first in the sentence. It doesn't have the flow of noun and verb like we think of and like we do and all those things. And you can kind of tell from either inflection or context what is emphasized. The idea was is they wanted to put it right up front so there was no mistake. So if you were to translate this literally into our language, you would see in verse four, chapter 14, verse 1, it would say, Sons, you are of Yahweh your Elohim. If you were to look at verse 2, it would say, A holy people you are to Yahweh your Elohim. And the emphasis is put upon the privileged position that Israel has above the nations to actually be able to commune with the Almighty God. Now remember, uh, well, let me just ask a, a quiz. I, I'm, I don't think I'll be disappointed on this. What was the purpose? Why did God want them to keep the law? It definitely demonstrated a different lifestyle to the pagan nations around them. But what was the whole purpose of them keeping the law of God? So that they would know? What do you mean? So that people would know that there was a set of rules out there? Okay, so the pagan people, are you talking about pagan people no, or the, Jewish people? Remind the Jewish people. Okay. You'll recognize us by what we do. You recognize us by what we do. Okay. Obedience. It shows their love to God. Disobedience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what if you don't keep the laws? He kick you out? He's like, you know good Israelite. Get out of here. Is that what he does? No. Grace and mercy. Okay, so there's grace and mercy. I, I it, it drives me up a wall when people are like, well, there's no grace or mercy in the Old Testament. Obviously, nobody's read the Old Testament. There's tons of grace and mercy. But what was the whole purpose of Israel keeping the law? What was it an issue for, or, or, or an issue of, between them and Yahweh? A relationship. It was what? A relationship. No. Covenant? No. Well, part of covenant, yeah, but... <laughs> Well, for one thing, to be to be able to go ahead and continue being that standard, you have to be able to teach and communicate this to the children. Okay, I liked where you're going at the beginning. You're not wrong. Maybe I'm terrible at asking questions. Maybe that's it. <laughs> well, let's let's back up a little bit and let's think about what's going on in the situation in Egypt right before they walk out. Okay, how 
How were the Jews accepted before God? What put them in a position of acceptance with God? Everybody remember? The blood on the door. The blood on the doorpost, right? The angel of death was going to pass over. And if they would simply apply the blood of the Lamb, death would pass over them. Everybody see how that's a type of what Christ would later do? Okay, so now here's the thing. If they applied the blood, they're accepted, and they marched out. How do you know that every Jew was in relationship with Yahweh? Because they were still living in the morning. And they were able to walk out. They actually plundered the Egyptians with everything they had there. And they walked out and they started to leave. But what is the basis of their fellowship with Yahweh? They're already in relationship. What's the basis of their fellowship? Obedience. Obedience. Or let's say it this way. Because... I tell you what, when we get it, obedience works, that kind of thing. We often keep obedience and works in their own separate compartment. Having fellowship with Yahweh starts with the thinking that says, I believe God's telling me the truth regardless of what other people are saying. You see what I'm saying? It's that type of affirmed mentality that just generates obedience. You don't have to worry about whether or not you're obeying. You just have to be convinced that God's telling you the truth and it happens. You see what I'm saying? I, one of the greatest examples of this is when you're dealing with a couple that's living together and they come to you. Well, I don't know if they come to you. They come to me and they want me to do premarital counseling because they want me to officiate their wedding. Move on. This is a prime opportunity. It really is. And you know what? For some of them, they've never heard the idea of what you're doing is wrong. It's sin. You have no claim on this person, and yet you're acting like you do at this moment. You're not one flesh with this person, you know. And then when I tell them if they're believers, I tell them they're touching their brother and they're touching their sister. They they want to get moved out pretty quick, you know. That's your brother in Christ. What are you doing? It's like, oh, that's kind of gross. It's like, good. That's how you should look at it. It's wrong. You sh- you shouldn't be seeing it this way. And I tell you what, when you bring this idea that God has an opinion. On how you live, decisions you make, what you do, your choices, uh, uh, how you see the world. All of a sudden they start to think about, whoa, God really cares about these things. God's got something to say about these things. God has a corner of the market of truth about these things. God knows all things, and if he knows all things, he knows the best things about these things. I probably can't continue the way I was. You see what I'm saying? Now obedience starts to happen. Why? Why? Because an affirmation of what is true has changed. That's the idea. God gives them the Ten Commandments there. And next thing you know, they can't think the same way anymore. They came from a polytheistic society. There were gods all over the place. Some of them probably built altars and temples and worship platforms or whatever we want to say for all these pagan gods. They knew them and we know they always had a problem with them because they could never fully shake them. They always had an issue with them. I tell you, reading some of the stuff in Ezekiel is some of the worst stuff. So all those were hanger-on ideas that had infected their soul. You come to the idea of the of the law. Excuse me. Go back to Deuteronomy 5 and just take a look at it. Verse 6. <clears throat> and, and I want you to see 
Sorry, I, I know that we may be on a little bit of a tangent, but I, I think it's so important to recover this because the concept isn't much different for the for the church age believer right now, except we're not obligated to keep the law. We've been saved actually to a higher situation because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit and we are in Christ, a, a position that these people never had. Look at chapter 5 of Deuteronomy verse 6. Look how this beginning of the law is impressed upon them with a statement. I am Yahweh. Your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice before, whoa, good grief. <laughs> Notice before he ever gives you one thing in this situation, he establishes you need to think correctly about who I am and what I have done for you. In fact, if you'll remember, we talked about this briefly and we went to Exodus 15 to see it. The ideas of who God is and what he has done, those are the two foundational pillars of worship. If we are worshiping for any other reason besides who God is and what God has done, we are worshiping wrong. That is to be the contents of our worship. That's that, If you want to know a filter of how you take, regardless if it's an old hymn or if it's a modern worship song or whatever you want to call it, you filter it through that. Does it talk about who God is? Does it talk about what God has done? If it hasn't, it should be set on fire, never to be remembered again. Okay, so notice how he begins this whole thing. Verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. There it is. No other gods. Now that's a completely revolutionary thought for a people who have been enslaved for 400 years in a polytheistic society. Egypt had a lot of gods. Egypt had a ton of gods. If you remember, every one of the plagues was an affront against at least one god in that situation, if not more gods. Because they had so many, you, you couldn't even name them. It's not any different today. It's really not. But to draw a line in the sand and say, there's no other gods. They're just one God. Man, they not... Revolutionary stuff. It it really is. And notice it wasn't like, oh my gosh, well I guess I better get busy and work. No. Notice it started with, you need to think right. That's the difference. Just get your thinking corrected. And that set the pattern for accepting everything else that was here. So it's a pretty amazing sit down. Yeah, go ahead. It is amazing though that they still obeyed and put the blood on the doorpost. Yeah. Really? It is. It is. And you know what? Uh, not only was God showing himself to be triumphant over all the gods that the Egyptians held dear and esteemed, but I think what he was also doing was convincing the Israelite people of his care for them. I mean, I, I, I know I brought this up five or six times. Think about think about if all of us were living in this little community outside of the world's superpower, okay? We got our own little designation of land. And there's a boundary around us. And if you were to step beyond the boundary, you are in complete pitch black darkness where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. However, every place that we are dwelling is completely lit up and normal, Okay? I can't wrap my mind around what that looks like, but it says that the Egyptians, because it was so dark, no one moved for three days. They just sat there, did nothing. I mean, they they could not go anywhere. Where do you find that? Uh, It's located back in Exodus. Uh, Let's see here. Exodus 10. Man, it is all over it. I know where that is. I read it yesterday. Did you? Oh, okay. We're good. <laughs> yeah. Exodus 10, look at verse 21. 
This is plague number nine. And, and here's the interesting thing about this also. is probably, does anybody know what the most famous god is in, in Egyptian history? Osiris, maybe? Well, no. Ra, the sun god. Everybody, everybody remember that? Ra, the sun god? Yeah. So you cover him up. Exactly. Notice that. The idea that all the people that worship Ra, the sun god, are now in darkness and can't even move. They're paralyzed. Man, that's spooky stuff. So, notice verse 21. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. Now, I don't care what haunted house you've been to. I'm not going to this, right? I mean, good googly. It is. Notice verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Now, notice they had light in their dwellings. Which tells me that if Moses was on the inside of Egypt and Israel is encamped outside of the superpower, that after he did this and this pronouncement and thick darkness took over, that Moses still had light around him to be able to walk out of that situation. Won't this be eternity without Christ? Uh, I don't know. Outer darkness? I know. I, and... and because they'll be alone. Gosh, Laverne. <laughs> I'm going to say this, and, and it's going to completely derail everything. Outer darkness is not hell or the lake of fire. Outer darkness is a place outside of the close fellowship proximity with Christ, and Christians are the ones who end up there who aren't faithful. See, I mean, you Here had to go. you had to take me there. Hold on. Yeah. But if you if you every instance where outer darkness is mentioned, it is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you notice, the people who end up in outer darkness uh, are people who had access to the Lamb, but but were not faithful. And so, uh, and, and we all we often talk about outer darkness as in pitch black, and people might be on fire or, or whatever it might be. It simply means the darkness outside is the idea. So the marriage feast of the Lamb will go on, but for those believers who were not faithful, they will still be raptured, but they will not get to partake in the marriage feast of the Lamb. Uh, I encourage you to in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. I encourage you to study every instance that it comes up with, and everybody says, oh, well, it says right here in the outer darkness there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember that weeping and gnashing of teeth is an emotion. It's not a location. And I think that's important to understand. Are you saying that we're not getting fully everything uh, that we're supposed to get in Christ because we're Christians uh, in eternity? Yes, I'm, I'm exactly saying that. And no one else is to blame for it except for us not being effectual doers of the word. That's why I'm saying that issue. Are we still in heaven? Are we still redeemed? Do we still have bliss? Is there still no penalty of death in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever? Yes. And if we don't appreciate the fact that we are admitted into heaven by the blood of Christ, then we don't fully understand how absolutely horrible the lake of fire will be. But also, as any other situation, the Father is always calling his children every moment, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me, in every situation that we will ever deal with. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And, and if we live a perpetual life of denying his word and not trusting him, we actually end up in a situation that will not be in the greatest of intimacy as we could have had, had we trusted him.
In fact, I think that at the judgment seat of Christ, where it says uh, those whose works are burned up, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.15, they will suffer shame. They will have shame or they will suffer loss. I think the thing that's going to be most devastated for believers at that moment is because we're going to be perfect and glorified bodies, that we're going to see what our lives could have been and what we settled for. And I think that contrast is going to be alarming to us. And here's the thing, since we're in a situation of truth with the God of all truth judging us, the only thing that's going to come out of our mouths is going to be, you're right, Lord, I was wrong. You see what I'm saying? We're going to be, we're going to perfectly agree with him. So the outer darkness is not, I always thought it was hell. No, I don't think so at all. I think it's for Christians. Mm, wow, that's different. I mean, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Christians that would disagree with that, but I say look at every passage, study it thoroughly, and ask yourself the question. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> getting back to fourteen, Deuteronomy fourteen. <laughs> First one. Sorry. <laughs> Let me ask you this, because I am tempted. <laughs> Would you guys maybe want to segue next week and look at the outer darkness? Yes. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Raise your hand if you would. Raise your hand if you'd want to continue on in Deuteronomy. As long as that works, because I'm going to be in Wausau next Sunday. <laughs> okay, so we'll do this. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but what we'll do is, is that if you have a concordance, I'll ask you to bring it. Or if you have uh, uh, the app Literal Word on your smartphone, it's an excellent app to have. Literal Word. It's free. It's got a great search tool on it concordance lexicon everything to help you with that and we can just go through we can look up the instances and i will actually try to put them down on paper and print them out with some space so that we can look at every situation where it's mentioned so that sound good yes sounds good wow okay <laughs> so we will, we will do that. yeah i know i'm sorry <laughs> So anyway, pray, praise God because He's awesome, right? Okay. Well, come on, sister. We Forgive me. Sister. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> so let's turn back to Deuteronomy 14, just real quick. Remember, the whole idea behind Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2, is that there's a setting apart from the nations. How did the nations conduct themselves? in either times of worship or designed for their God to work. Remember, they're, they're following uh, fallen angels, demons essentially is the situation. What is it that they do? Well, they cut themselves and they uh, shave their heads and those types of things. Uh, the sheer fact that you have Orthodox Jews that have the curly cues that are coming off the sides of their temples is nothing more than the idea of the fact that they are a set-apart, different people who look differently or operating themselves differently because of a conviction of what God's Word has said true. They're not to do like the rest of the world is to do. Now, when we've been set free from the law, no, we're not obligated to keep these things. I do want to show you a couple of instances, though, where some of this takes place, and we talked about getting to this last week. Uh, let's see here. Leviticus uh, 21. Turn with me over to Leviticus 21. And we're going to look at 17 through 24. And this is going to seem extremely insensitive to you. I'll just go ahead and tell you. With our 21st century mindset, all the things that go on about social justice, 
all the things that are preached about equality for all people and all this, uh, that is that is never God's mandate. God's mandate is never equality. Equality is something that does not exist. It just doesn't. Uh, life is not fair. I think the sooner that we all recognize that life is not fair, uh, that not everybody gets the same lot in life and all of that, I think the much better off we'd be to be able to cope with, with life's understandings. And I think what we're seeing with the generation that's coming up is they have no idea how to cope when everybody told them that everything should have been fair. And so they're all running like rats uh, into all kinds of crazy things. Uh, this What this is going to show you is going to show you the purity that was demanded by God in the priesthood of Aaron's line. Okay, so you've already got a problem because God has designated one line for a specific task over the rest of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now notice that the 11 tribes didn't turn around and go, that's not fair. None of them did that, okay? We could sit here and say it's not fair, so be it. But with this special designation came a high responsibility that was put in their hands. So look at, uh, let's see here, let's start in verse 16. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron, saying, no man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his Elohim. Is everybody with me? Everybody got that? What chapter are you? I'm in chapter 21 of Leviticus. All right. Sorry. Oops. Did I say something different? I thought you said 22, but maybe I... Okay, we're going to go to 22 as well. So, but notice, uh, no one who has a defect. What in the world does it mean to have a defect? Verse 18, 4. No one who has a defect shall approach. A blind man, a lame man, or he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb, or a man who has a broken foot or broken hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man among the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's uh, offerings by fire since he has a defect he shall not come near to offer the food of his Elohim he must he may eat the food of his Elohim both of the most holy and of the holy and so notice even though the sacrifices are done how did the Levites eat they ate of the things that were sacrificed to God after the sacrifice was over <clears throat> they can still eat. They're not to starve. They're just not to be involved in the offering of the situation. Verse 23, only he shall not go into the veil. He can't be in the, in the holy of holies or come near the altar because he has a defect so that he will not profane my sanctuaries for I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel. Wow, how do we think about that? Just different from being ceremonially unclean? Yes. <clears throat> Although it looks like there might be some overlap. <clears throat> there could be. And there's also a debate about whether or not some of those things that have happened to them... Um, and, and I'll be honest with you, I know we all kind of read it and our eyes get kind of big, but what in the world happened to somebody that their testicles got crushed? I don't have a clue. But maybe it was a situation where uh, they had sold themselves out for a moment to pagan worship and they were in the process of becoming eunuchs or, or something. I don't have a clue what was going on with that. In, uh, in battle? <laughs> could be in battle. Good googly. You know, but still, uh, in a situation like that, they're still deemed in an area that is considered... Uh, not acceptable before the Lord. Right. Now, is that because God loves, or sorry, is that because God hates these people? 
No, it's not because of that. It's because God has set a standard that is supposed to be meant in a certain way and is supposed to be pictured in a certain way. Now, let me ask you this. What in the world is this type of perfection before the Lord in this situation supposed to depict? It's like sacrificing the lambs. You have to have a perfect one. Okay. It's just like you have to have an unblemished lamb, right? Required it to be a male old. No, well, this one's two years. It'll do. No, don't do that. That's not what God said. You see what I'm saying? It could just come down to an issue of that's not what God said. Don't do it. He actually is the only parent that has the right to say, because I said so. You know, <clears throat> everything else we say, because I said so. And then the kid goes, why? You know, when God says so, just don't argue. Just do it. Let's learn a lesson from our kids and just do it. Don't do what they do. So. But what is it ultimately picturing here? The perfection of the Christ idea of offering. Sacrifice. What's up? Christ's sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice is what office? What office is it representing? What's the representation here? Who's he talking to? Who's Moses talking to? Go talk to who? Go talk to? Aaron. Why? They're the priests. And so notice, everything about their priesthood and the dispensing of their responsibilities before God is painting a picture and foreshadowing the idea of Christ as the perfect high priest who would walk forward and offer his perfect blood as the sacrifice that atones for the sins of the world. They must be unblemished. Why? Because they are picturing Christ. Yes. Notice that it's nothing about, well, because they're blind, we just don't like them as much. Notice that's not it at all. It's because we talk about being perfectly whole because Christ was the sacrifice himself. In fact, it's really important for us to recognize this. That's the whole point of the resurrection. The resurrection is not just because he makes people alive. That's a great benefit that pours over to us. But what was the offering that Jesus gives to God? What is it? His blood, right? How can you offer your blood if you're dead? Notice he was not only the sacrifice, but he's also the priest that offers the sacrifice. So he had to raise from the dead. Why? So that he could come before the Father in the temple in heaven and sprinkle his own perfect blood to atone for the sins of the world. The priest has to be alive in order to present the sacrifice. So he was resurrected unto that end. So you don't want to mess up the picture of the priesthood because it's a picture of an office that his son will play to redeem us all. Good stuff. Good stuff. Look at chapter 22, verse 3. Say to them, if any man among all your descendants throughout your generations approaches the holy, notice the word gifts isn't there, holy, which the sons of Israel dedicate to Yahweh, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from before me. I am Yahweh. And chances are the word cut off means exclusively put to death. This was considered something that merited capital punishment. <clears throat> Verse 4, no man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or who has a discharge may eat of the holy until he is clean. And if one touches anything made unclean by a corpse or if a man has a seminal emission or if a man touches any teeming things, creeping things, some of your translations will say. Some of your translations will say reptiles in that type of situation by which he is made unclean, or any man by whom he is made unclean, whatever his uncleanness, a person who touches any such shall be unclean until, here's the requirements to be made clean. Number one, it has to be evening. If you are unclean that morning, you have to wait until evening in order to be clean again. 
and shall not eat of the holy unless he has bathed his body in water. But when the sun sets, there's requirement number one, evening, he will be clean and afterward he shall eat of the holy for it is his food. He shall not eat an animal which dies or is torn by beast, becoming unclean by it. I am Yahweh. So even notice there were certain restrictions about whether or not they could eat of the food based on their current situation. They were required to go through a process of cleansing in order to be able to partake. Why is it? Because God is painting a picture of the sacred. He's painting a picture of perfection, the holiness, and he's using imperfect people as his illustrations. Now we can look at this and say, good grief, God is, God is so mean and narrow-minded and he's so bigoted and all these things. Or he's trying to show us something that we would not otherwise know if he wouldn't paint it for us. Question. Yes, ma'am. When the, every time it says holy, it's got gifts and calendar. <coughs> yes. So does that mean it wasn't there in the original text? Yes. Anytime that the New American Standard Version gives you a word that's in the italics, it's something that the translators of the version supplied with the hopes of bringing greater clarity to what you're reading. But the idea of the food being holy, why is it holy? Because it's been set apart and offered to the Lord. That's the reason why. So you could say gifts because it's the offerings and things that the people were bringing. But the idea of it being holy is the idea of just it's set apart for God. And that's how the, the, the uh, Levites sustained themselves. That was their sustenance. So, so here's what we see is that God has high and holy standards that are far beyond what the pagan practices were of their time. These guys are all cutting themselves and offering anything, including their children, in order to appease their gods. God operates completely different and sets a whole different framework for how they understand it. All of it pointing to the coming of his son so that he would be undeniably recognized in his work. So if you've ever wondered even, you know, well, why, what's the benefit of studying the Old Testament? If anything, to get a greater full-orbed perspective of all that Christ is. All of it prepares us for him. All the New Testament is explanatory of him. So, well, let's pray. And we will prepare our minds for the next six days for the outer darkness, okay? So, God, thank you for... Uh, this time to see that you are drastically different from a lot of the things that we settle for in life or deem uh, normal or acceptable. Father, you are true and all that you deem is what is acceptable and what is normal. Everything else is abnormal. Uh, we thank you that Jesus has saved us from the abnormality of death in the lake of fire because our right place is to be in relationship and in reconciliation with you. Thank you, God. Uh, that you are uh, a master teacher in your word. And thank you that Christ is such a great high priest that offers a perfect sacrifice. It's in his name we ask for our minds to be renewed. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>